0: Sure, Tom. It has been a while since we've seen an opinion procedure released. The last one was August 2020, so about a year and a half passed in between that opinion procedure released and this one. And this one
1: did have some very interesting, almost made-for-the-movies type of facts. It was Morrison and Forrester partner James Kukios. James returns to discuss the firm's Always Great international and a corruption newsletter for January. In this episode, we take up Opinion Release 2201, a summary judgment granted in a bribery-related breach of contract case, FIFA defendants raise a local law defense, the former CEO of Pemex is charged, and we explore its implications, and we conclude with the South African Anti-Corruption Commission and what it may mean for the fight against corruption in South Africa. I know you'll enjoy this episode with James Kukios. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I'm thrilled to have back with me fan favorite James Kukios, fellow Michigan Wolverine. And for those of you not watching at home because this is an audio podcast, James is wearing his maize and blue shirt. So go blue. James, first first of all, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. James, I wanted to visit with you today on the always great uh, monthly International Anti-Corruption Top 10 Stories. And we're going to take January today. And We're going to start with Opinion Release 2201. It not had an opinion release in some time. This one had a very unique set of facts and circumstances. So I was wondering what you saw in this opinion release that maybe either caught your interest or two is something you can use when you counsel clients going forward. We took it all. We brought them to our land.
0: Sure, Tom. It it has been a while since we've seen an opinion procedure release. This last one was August 2020, so about a year and a half passed in between that opinion procedure release and this one. And this one did have some very interesting, almost made-for-the-movies type of facts. And just to orient everyone, according to the facts that the company presented as part of the opinion procedure request, there was a company that basically Maritime, and they had a ship that inadvertently anchored in another country's waters, and as a result of that, was detained. They called it Country A. So Country A detained the crew and the captain. They The country took the captain on shore and kept him in jail, despite the fact that the captain was suffering from what appeared to be some serious medical conditions. And the company actually went to various components of the U.S. government to try to get help. This Obviously, kind of a diplomatic situation makes sense, and those attempts to get assistance from other parts of the U.S. government appear to have been unsuccessful. And then, all of a sudden, a third party shows up and says, "Hey, if you give me one hundred seventy-five thousand dollars, I can get the captain, the crew, and the vessel all released." And the company was not surprisingly concerned that the payment was intended for a government official of Country A, and so. The company went to DOJ for an opinion procedure release and said, will you bring an enforcement action against us if we pay this money? And DOJ said, no, we will not. So very interesting. I think in many ways, this the DOJ's reasoning really fell within some of the factual scenarios laid out in the FCPA Resource Guide that talked about some of the legislative history also about what is a true extortion of payment versus an economic extortion. And in in that, in the FCPA resource guide, DOJ gave the example of an oil rig that if somebody said, we're going to blow up an oil rig unless you pay us money, DOJ said that would be true extortion and that wouldn't be a bribe. This has the hallmarks of that. You've got a uh, ship that was seized with a captain who is having some medical difficulties. The implications are he may have suffered some severe debilitating consequences if he hadn't been released. And so I think in that where there's actually a threat to human life, there's an example of true economic extortion as opposed to a business purpose. And so DOJ said, you can go ahead and do this. Not sure that an opinion procedure request was needed in this case. This is actually not that uncommon of a scenario. Maybe a more colorful scenario presented with all the international intrigue in this one. But we've had, for example, other times where people have been detained in situations where They thought that there would be some kind of threat to human life or other type of situation, and oftentimes companies come to law firms to say, is this an example of true extortionate behavior, and can you give us an opinion from a law firm saying that we can make this payment without running afoul of the FCPA. And I think generally speaking, that's what companies like to do. You have an advice of counsel defense ordinarily if you do that and you don't alert DOJ to anything that they wouldn't ordinarily have been alerted to, just in case DOJ disagrees with that. Here, my sense is maybe several components of the U.S. government have already been made aware of the situation. The opinion procedure release goes through and says how the company had appealed to various parts of the U.S. government about, about trying to get the captain and the crew released. And so maybe the company was thinking, look, the cat's already out of the bag. We've already gone to a lot of people in the US government. If we make this payment, DOJ could find out about it anyway. So why don't we go ahead and get their blessing? And they did that. That's speculation on my part, but I think it's a reasonable inference of what may have happened. The interesting part here, I think one of the very interesting things is the way DOJ approached this is they actually gave an initial advisory opinion saying, go ahead and make the payment And we'll follow up with a a written explanation later on. I'm not aware of that ever happening. I think that's very interesting. And I think the other thing about it is it shows that DOJ is actually willing to take practical action when there seems to be a real threat to human life, which I think is great. Oftentimes, when I used to do these opinion procedure releases, there's always some other fact you need to find out. And so oftentimes we'd go back once, maybe twice to the company and say, what about this? Tell us more about that. Um, and it would take a long time and people get very frustrated by it. Here, DOJ actually said, make the payment and we'll follow up and write later because we don't want your captain to die, essentially. So I think that was one very interesting thing that came out of this is that DOJ can be persuaded to take quick action when it's necessary. And I think this will be a very useful tool for compliance compliance. Practitioners. We've been saying for years that this type of situation probably falls within that true extortionate impact or exception defense. And this gives a real good example, a practical example that DOJ means this. And I'll just one last thing time I'll liken this to an opinion procedure release from a couple of years ago. There was a company that bought another company and in the due diligence found the company, which was not a US company or an issuer, had paid a bribe in the past. And the acquiring company saw an opinion procedure release saying, hey, if we acquire this non-issuer, non-domestic concern that paid a bribe in the past, will that create FCPA liability for us when we buy the company? And DOJ said, no, it won't. And that scenario is almost exactly in the FCPA resource guide as well. So again, probably an example where the company didn't need to go to DOJ to ask for the opinion. But for us compliance folks, a good example of DOJ does mean what it said in the FCPA resource guide that you can't create FCPA li- liability where there wasn't any. And there is actually such thing as true of demands that are not going to violate the FCPA. So I think that's a, is a very interesting opinion procedure, more for the color and the expedited process, I think that the actual legal principle at issue, DOJ had already staked out that claim pretty well a long time ago.
1: So, James, I certainly agree with uh, your points. And I guess the thing that struck me was when you have a true health issue that can even be life or death, the DOJ seems to work with the company. I can think of one other opinion release that I would have said, Probably violated the FCPA, but it involved, I think, a life or death health issue. In the DOJ, said under those facts and circumstances, they would not prosecute the company. So, when you do have that situation, I think you're absolutely right. The DOJ is open to hearing those arguments, and more importantly, they're open to working with you on a time frame that is needed for whatever the health issue might be. And just, I'd like to add, glad to see we got an opinion release. I think it's a wonderful tool for companies and compliance practitioners. We've been, as you said, it'd been a while since we'd seen one. So good to see one out again. And as you said, I'm not sure if you'd taken this story to Hollywood, I think they probably would have said, sorry, we can't use this. It's too unbelievable. (laughs) Next up, we had a summary judgment granted in a breach of contract case where the allegations were bribery to get out of a contract. This was a civil suit, state court suit, And what intrigued me about it, James, was we hear about these types of suits from time to time, and I wanted to maybe use this case to, to ask you, one, are you familiar with these types of claims? Have you worked on these when you moved into the law firm world? And even if you haven't, how do you help a company either craft a defense to a breach of contract case or perhaps use a bribery allegation affirmatively to avoid making an alleged contractually required payment. So
0: this was an interesting case where a a U.S. medical device company had terminated a Chinese contractor when the U.S. company received information that the Chinese company may have been involved in bribery. The U.S. company terminated the Chinese contractor, and then actually voluntarily self-reported the issue to, did a public disclosure and commenced an internal investigation. And the Chinese contractor ended up saying, no, you just didn't want to pay us. You made this all up. And this brought, as you said, Tom, a breach of contract suit. I haven't personally worked on one of these myself, but I have heard about them happening, including in other countries where the government got behind the terminated company. The foreign government got behind the terminated company and brought antitrust actions against the company doing the termination. So th- this type of thing is not unheard of. And it, it could you could see in certain scenarios it might be an interesting breach of contract claim. Here, however, and I think this is very important for those of us who are in this space, the judge actually in granting summary judgment to the, to the U.S. company, you basically said that the company did the right thing and that it made lots of sense that they would terminate self-report and publicly disclose these things without hesitation. And I think I'll quote it just because I think it's a pretty good quote. The judge wrote, unsurprisingly, Given the existential threat to public companies posed by potential Foreign Corrupt Practices Act FCPA violations, the U.S. company quickly terminated its agreement with the Chinese company and commenced an internal investigation, voluntary self-reporting, and public disclosure. Defendants certainly had a right and an obligation to act promptly to protect themselves from FCPA liability. It's a pretty useful holding for folks, and I think that can draw some lessons if this does happen to you in the future. Number one, I think making a very clear record of where the information came from and why it's credible, taking the actions that you would actually do, not just terminating. You know that if you just terminated, that might create a scenario where it would look more like you were just trying to get out of a payment, but not only terminating, but also commencing an internal investigation, taking it seriously, and voluntarily self reporting it and disclosing to the public, which shows that the company wasn't just trying to get out of of a payment, but actually taking this very seriously to the point where they would damage their reputation potentially publicly and submit themselves to an investigation by DOJ. So I think two, two good things here are, The company took those follow-up steps, which could be a good defense in case of a breach of of contract litigation that follows. On the flip side, I think probably terminating was a smart idea as well, because one thing DOJ does not want a company to do is if they suspect that a payment is going to be used improperly by a contractor or subcontractor, they don't want that payment to go through. And so on the flip side... From a DOJ perspective, the company also did the right thing by terminating that contract and withholding that payment. So I think there's lessons to be learned both in how to deal with DOJ and how to defend yourself against a breach of a, a contract agreement action in case that happens. Tom, did you see anything else in there that was interesting?
1: No, just the, the use of that defense. And I, I did a podcast with one of your former colleagues, Laura Perkins, a little bit earlier. And apparently there's an entire subculture in the commercial arbitration world where this issue is arbitrated rather than litigated quite a bit. I've often wondered why this issue didn't come up more in civil litigation, so I was really intrigued when you guys put it, to put it in the newsletter. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more from James. Our next topic is, frankly, one of my favorites, the local law defense. And some FIFA defendants raised the local law defense. Why is it one of my favorite topics? Because it has never successfully been used. Period. And never will be successfully used. Period. The local law defense basically says if it is legal on the books to pay bribes to government officials in a country, that's a defense to the FCPA. But guess what? No country in the world says you can bribe our government officials. But here we have FIFA defendants trying to claim well, this is not bribery of government officials. It's just regular old commercial bribery. So the FCPA should not apply. You want to take it up from there, James, now that I've said what? Yeah, sure. sure. Yeah, go ahead. This is, (laughs) it's
0: interesting because FIFA is not actually an FCPA case because FIFA is not a public international organization. And therefore, the officials of FIFA are not actually foreign officials for purposes of the FCPA. But Eastern District of New York brought a bunch of prosecutions based on FIFA, based on wire fraud and money laundering theories because the money, the payments, or the people actually went through the United States in furtherance of these bribes to get various licensing deals or advertising rights or things like that for FIFA tournaments. But you're right, it was very similar type of defense. And basically, what they said here is, how are we supposed to know this was illegal? Because in our country, commercial bribery is not wrong. It's not illegal. So in our country, we can make these kind of payments. Therefore, It can't be illegal under U.S. law. And that's really not the right right analysis for many reasons. It is true that in many countries, as well as in Florida and some states, in other states, in the United States, commercial bribery is not illegal. And I've dealt with this, for example, in Brazil, in the Lava Jato investigations. Obviously, in Brazil, public official bribery is illegal, but commercial bribery is not and so when you're talking to a Brazilian lawyer, it's hard to explain like, why does DOJ care about commercial bribery if it's not illegal here? And that's essentially what the defendants were doing. But just because it was not legal, just because it was not illegal in their home countries, because they had that U.S. nexus uh, and because U.S. law essentially makes commercial bribery illegal if it violates the fraud or money laundering statutes, that's not a defense. And so the court basically said, you're not going to be able to raise that defense because it's going to confuse the situation, it's going to confuse the facts, and it has nothing to do with U.S. law. I do think, Tom, to your point, it might have been a different scenario if there was a law on the books that said you may bribe people commercially. I think that would be a, a much stronger position under the FCPA, it would actually... Uh, Count, But even in this situation, it might have worked because then not only is it just not the absence of a law, but actually the presence of a law actually saying you can't do something that you did. We thought it was an interesting analogy, not directly on point with the FCPA, but still an example where uh, foreign commercial bribery can be brought in U.S. court and the fact that it's not illegal in the home country really doesn't save the day for the defendants.
1: Next up, we had a former CEO of Pemex charged with corruption in Mexico. And I really wanted to use this story, James, to maybe ask you to talk about, is there real cooperation between U.S. and Mexican authorities? Uh, There's always a political tension between our countries, doesn't matter who's the president, and... Were you able to work with your counterparts in Mexico, or is it something completely different?
0: Yeah, this is an interesting story, and it's been unfolding for a long time, and I think we've talked about it in the past, Tom, but basically, since around 2020, Mexican authorities have been investigating Emilio Lozoya, who's the former CEO of Pemex. Mexico's national oil company, for money laundering, criminal association, and bribery. There's a couple of different aspects to this. There's a sale of a fertilizer plant to Pemex. There's some allegations about money going to the former president of Mexico through there. And we really did think that maybe when we first started following this a couple of years ago, that this might be Mexico's Lava Jata. It appeared to have a lot of steam behind it. And there were reports in respectable outlets like the Wall Street Journal saying that the U.S. government had gotten involved in these investigations as well and were looking into them. And that really sounded like maybe this is a Mexican Lavajato. You've got the domestic authorities looking into a bribery scheme involving the National Oil Company, and you've got the U.S. looking at it in parallel. And so maybe there's an opportunity for the two countries to work together and really bring a big, a big investigation, parallel investigations. So far, it doesn't seem to have happened. Always hard to say what's happening behind the scenes when you're not there, but certainly hasn't been a lot of visible action here. This fellow, Emilio Zoya was charged again in January of 2022, but he was charged several years before as well. And in the interim, reports have been that he'd been cooperating. So my suspicion is maybe that cooperation has fallen apart. And so Mexico is moving forward and bringing more charges. We haven't publicly seen a lot of Cooperation between the US and Mexico on this. Again, it could be happening behind the scenes and we don't know about it. But there always was a little bit of a tension in terms of US and Mexican law enforcement cooperation on the public corruption side. There's tremendous amount of cooperation on the narcotics side. The US and Mexico are very close law enforcement partners when it came to anti-narcotics interventions. But when it came to public corruption, it was a little more, it was a lot more sensitive because then you got. Issues about Mexican sovereignty coming into play, where there's a concern that maybe the U.S. is trying to dictate Mexican politics or the way that Mexico runs its government, which goes back all the way to the Alamo and many other incursions where the Mexicans think that the U.S. really overstepped, took land or otherwise overstepped the boundaries of, of what they should be doing. And so public corruption was always an area where it was difficult to get some level of cooperation there. Money laundering, has, cooperation has increased over the years. And so you start to get more towards bribery. We talk about just not narcotics money laundering, but other kind of money laundering. But we haven't seen so far that sort of the way that Brazil and the U.S. work together in public corruption cases in Lavajato. We really haven't seen that yet. And there are indications it might not happen. Obviously, the president, the current president of Mexico, has a very interesting style and a very interesting relationship with the United States uh, and concerns about Mexican sovereignty, which are perennial. And so, not clear that this is going to result in any kind of cooperation or uh, coordinated action. Definitely one to continue to watch. If you look at the allegations involved here, they're they're huge. They involve people all the way to the top of the Mexican government. And if it did go forward, it would be a major news story, which is why we've been following it for two years. But so far, I haven't seen much. I don't know, Tom, you're closer down there in, in, in Texas. Have you seen any movement?
1: The political situation on the border is not the best right now. And the beloved governor of the state of Texas wants to declare war on Mexico. So I'm not quite sure what it means for cooperation. But I would say the tensions you cited to, I think, are longstanding. And whenever we have issues of Mexican sovereignty involved, or trade, or economics, or a wealth of others, things get a little complicated. So that's about the best I can say. James, for our final story, South Africa has recommended an anti-corruption commission. And I wanted to maybe use this topic to, to ask you to give us your thoughts on where South Africa is in looking at investigating or perhaps prosecuting anti-corruption? And is this something U.S. companies need to be cognizant of and really watching going forward?
0: Tom, the story you're referring to is that in early January of 2022, South Africa's Judicial Commission of Inquiry into allegations of state capture, corruption, and fraud in the public sector, including organs of state, That is a mouthful, but it's also known as the Zondo Commission after its chairperson, Acting Chief Justice Raymond Zondo. That commission issued a report recommending that the South African government establish a single, multifunctional, properly resourced, and independent anti-corruption authority with a mandate to confront the abuses inherent in the present system. And they recommended that the authority be called something like the Anti-Corruption Authority, or the Anti Corruption Agency of South Africa, and recommended that it be modeled along the lines of the country's Competition Commission. And then the report further recommended that the South African government work with the business sector and other relevant stakeholders to adopt a national charter against corruption, incorporating the standardized code of conduct. So this comes out of a long investigation into alleged impropriety by South African President Jacob Zuma and reports that he. Engaged in in improper conduct with certain members of a very powerful family in South Africa called the Gupta family. And this has ensnared a lot of U.S. companies. It's been taking up a lot of time in South Africa as well and really shown some of the weaknesses of the South African state. It's interesting. South Africa is obviously a very big economic driver for Africa, big economy. It really does have a lot of potential on the foreign bribery enforcement stage. There's always talk about the sophistication of South African law enforcement and investigations. And there's always a lot of promise that they're going to get more involved and do more, but it all always, unfortunately, seems to fall a bit short in that regard. It is interesting. I looked at the, um, the AI for 2020 and South Africa is actually ranked 70th. So In that regard, it's in the top half, at least. But it does show that South Africa has a lot of perceived corruption involved there. And so maybe by creating an independent corruption commission, they can start addressing that. We'll have to wait and see. There's been, like I said, there's been talk about South Africa cracking down on corruption for a long time. The Zondo Commission was a step in the right direction, perhaps. But I think this is a story we just need to continue to watch to see what actually happens.
1: Well, James, that brings us to the end of this episode. We're going to link to the newsletter in the show notes. I wanted to thank you again. I look forward to continuing this conversation. Thanks, Tom. Always appreciated. Go Blue. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is not only now the award-winning FCPA Compliance Report, but it's the longest-running podcast in compliance. I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode of the award-winning FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.